This episode of EM Weekly has been archived. The ideas presented by the former host of EM Weekly may not reflect or represent the values of the Readiness Lab and the Doberman Emergency Management Group. Out of respect for the guests who contributed to this episode, it remains available online. EM Weekly starting right now, bringing emergency managers from around the world together to learn, share and collaborate. Good morning. This is uh, Todd DeVille, your host. And Dan's running late. It's okay. And uh, when he gets here, we'll pop him on. But more importantly, hey, we got some fires burning here in Orange County today. And uh, so the smoke is all over the place. I just want to say to everybody here in Orange County, uh, stay safe for the firefighters that are out there on the line. Uh, Stay safe. And for my friends in emergency management that are activated up in the EOC doing what they're supposed to be doing, uh, you know, keep it up. And, uh, you know, I know this has been a long year for everybody, uh, especially here in California um, and and elsewhere, for that matter, with COVID. Um, So uh, just just keep your heads up, everybody. We're going to be talking about crisis today. And crisis leadership and, and chaos and a couple other things. So today I, I have Davia is coming on. Davia Timian is coming on um, the show. And I saw her article in Forbes magazine. And when I read it, I, I had to I had to get it. And so basically it says when a crisis hits, how you respond in the first 15 minutes can make or break your organization and reputation, which is so true. And Davy has a long um, history uh, in, in emergency, or not emergency management, in crisis leadership. Um, she's a CEO of her own company, which uh, does a lot of consulting. And it was founded in 1997. She leads her practice focus on international crisis, reputation, and risk management with a specialty in cybersecurity, sexual harassment, security-related crisis management. And Timmy and, her, and uh, Davia, which is the coolest name, by the way, just I'm kind of Love the name. Um, and her company works with clients to create brand distinguished throughout leadership and best practices in government's corporation, corporate leadership, and as well as promote women's leadership and provide social responsibility, marketing, media, social strategy, and more. Davia, welcome to EM Weekly. Thank you, Todd. It's delightful to be here. And our worlds aren't always delightful, so that's especially nice. <laughs> it is. So... I read your article. I kind of read a little snippet of it um, in the, in the show description, um, and and you're so right. Like that first 15 minutes of, of anything that's going down really sets the tone for the entire uh, uh, the entire response. Um, but specifically in crisis leadership, uh, why is that 15 minutes even like more important to you? Well, you know, with um, social media the world absolutely changed and it keeps on changing and morphing certainly for some good ways and certainly for some that aren't so good. So right now a lie or a truth or a piece of news transits the globe at the speed of light, right? It's just there and around. And by the time you uh, get yourself together, it's gone around and like the virus, it has probably morphed some and it's changed shape. So it's one humongous game of telephone in no time at all. So it used to be, you know, Tylenol was the, um, the, the benchmark of good crisis management. Well, that right. was 38 years ago. Wow. A long time, right? Yeah, so at that point, it took... Johnson and John, uh, it, it, it took J and J three days to figure out whether or not to 
withdraw all of the Tylenol capsules from the market world uh, countrywide when some under 10 had been identified as cyanide laced and there had been mm-hmm. deaths. Three days it took them. And that was heralded as an absolutely uh, breakthrough decision that they made in breakthrough time. You imagine that today that happened. There'd be no product and no company left. So everything is, is accelerated so much. And the first 15 minutes, I think it's actually now less, I hate to say it. Um, and how you handle it, whether you establish authority, authenticity, trustworthiness or not, um, that makes the whole game. Uh, absolutely. And, and we've seen some, I, I would say that the examples of bad crisis leadership um, is, seems to be like, we see that we could pick that out like yeah. crazy. Like you think about like the BP oil spill, for instance, uh, a great example of what not to do, you know? Right. Um, but we don't really, we can't, I don't say can't, uh, and you know, for those of us that aren't as tuned as, as you are, we don't really pick out that great crisis leadership necessarily. I mean, I, I suppose we could take a look at like, say, Rudy Giuliani during 9-11 would be a good example, I suppose. Um, But I mean, like outside of those extreme cases, what's it look like when something is handled properly? Is it just something that we don't notice or is that kind of the way it goes through under the radar? Yes. Well, I think it's all about establishing trust, which really is not cynical. It means to be trustworthy. Hmm. And when an organization is trustworthy in that they say what they're going to do, and then they do what they say. Um, they start to establish a bond with consumers and whatever. And, you know, in certainly in this country, I'll speak for this country, we give people the den- benefit of the doubt oftentimes. We like a comeback kid. You know, we're, we're America. We have a, that free spirit. And um, we can give people some, le- some latitude. But once they start to lie, once they start to deny and defend and, and go into something that's completely different, I don't think we give, give them that latitude anymore. And in fact, they don't earn it. Mm. So one of the things that I think as an organization, I think you need to go through this process of planning long before anything happens. You have to identify what your major risks are your predictable risks. So an airlines is always going to be practicing their air, their crash response. Always. Right. right? They've got manuals from, you know, fill up a, a hard drive on, on what to, to do as well. They should. So you identify all of those that are predictable. Then you start to think about the unpredictable ones, right? The black swans, the pink swans, the green swans. And and then you start to, to think about those too. And then I think you start to get your team together. I'm not as, as big on crisis planning because it because then no crisis unfolds like the plan. So right. then you have to extricate yourself from the plan, regroup and do the right thing. Whereas if you know where you've been planning, you know who your core group is, you know who's going to make the decisions, you know who's going to be the spokesperson, um, you know a lot of things. And you also learn how to pivot and work together with teamwork. So that's when you're at your peak performance of being able to respond. And if you do this right, it looks seamless to the world. Mm -hmm. It looks like you're just a good group, good company, good whatever, and that, that you've got your priorities straight. Right. That makes so sense. In, yeah, no, for sure. So 
in an emergency management disaster response, if you will, um, you know, in in the you know my friends in London they or England they they call it uh, emergency planning, right? Um, in this field, one of the things I find interesting is that I we do and I'll I'll I'll, I'll go I'll go to the mattresses for this one. We 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 do emergency response well, right? Lights yeah. and sirens. We get there, we rescue people, do this whole nine yards, and where we seem to do where we seem to fail, right? is we fail in sometimes the recovery, right? Yeah. Because people start bickering amongst themselves, politically speaking. And, but we, we fail a lot of times in, in messaging yeah. um, and in the crisis communication, you know, and, and, you know, if you think about what's going on here with, with COVID, right. I mean, this is a really great example. Um, you know, I think the problem that we have isn't necessarily people not wanting to respond properly to the Christ, to the, to the COVID, to, to the pandemic, people want to do the right thing, but we have so much mixed messaging coming in from all different levels of government. We got, we got governors bickering with the white house. We got the white house, you know, so a lot of this going on, um, which really I think saps the, um, the trust, if you will, in the messaging, you know, what can we do to, you know, for lessons going forward, right? Where the, you know, the toothpaste is out of the tube on this one, but what can we do going forward as emergency managers and as crisis leaders to, to, I mean, for the next big one that comes along, what can we do better? Okay. So what you what you want, what you need to do is establish um, authenticity and trust. I mean, we, we did have a few examples. I mean, Fauci is one who, regardless of all of the influences and the millions of tugs and pulls he's had on him, he has managed to do that. So I guess Tom, he was just named, you know, one of the, the, the top people of, of 2020. No, no surprise to anybody. But um, you need to have that, that still, calm, reliable, trustworthy voice in the middle of all of it. Now, that may not be the emergency um, worker who is in the middle of saving people's lives, who is in the middle of cutting a, you know, a, um, a gap for, for the fire not to cross. I mean, it, it, it generally takes somebody a, totally familiar with it, but a little bit outside of it to be that appropriate spokesperson who can marshal the words, who understands how it all works, who understands where it's going. And see, I don't think it's just communication. Mm. Because you can just, I mean, you can communicate anything, right? It's the strategy behind it. And it's the, the, the honesty and the, and the goodwill behind all of that that comes through in how you communicate. So communication is, yes, critical. It's the doorway. But you've got to have the right thing going through the doorway. Mm. Makes a lot of sense. So yesterday you and I talked a little bit, you know, and we're talking about the idea of crisis and crisis or crises, I suppose, if you add multiples to them, um, moving into chaos. And, and your contention right now is we're sort of in that, in that chaos part of our world. What, what is the biggest difference between what you would consider a crisis and something that turns into, to chaos? Yes. Yeah. So crises, predictable or unpredictable they still have an internal logic to them. There's still, there's a certain predictability about them. So if you, heaven forbid, have a fire, you know that if you 
address it in the right way with all the time honored um, firefighting techniques. If you wet down the houses, if you do, I mean, you guys are more better at this than I, you can fill in the one, two, three, four things of your playbook. This is how you save lives. This is how you save property, right? This is how you mitigate damage. If uh, you can, you do that, the winds prevail in the right direction. You succeed. That's one crisis. Maybe it's a series of a couple of crises. But what we've got today is one crisis overlaps with another crisis, which overlaps with another and another and another until you have got one congealed mass of trouble. Mm. You've got political disruption. You've got you've got COVID. You've got people not knowing whether to do this or to do that or to congregate or not congregate, whether they've got so many different things coming into their heads. Uh, and then they've got what they want. They're tired of staying home. So you've got people, you know, in internal rebellion about that, right? We see it in young people, colleges and universities all the time. You've So you've got that overlaying it. You've got the psychology of it overlaying it. You've got claustrophobia. You've got people who are losing friends and relatives. And you've got the financial disaster that goes mm-hmm. along with it. So what you've got are like many, many overlapping things. At that point, logic stops working at that point the the assurance that if you pull on string a at the top string a is going to go up at the bottom you don't know that that's going to happen you can pull on string a and m can happen Mm. so causality gets ruptured so you think about crisis rules i have all my crisis rules i think about that all the time i keep revising them all the time as the world changes the idea of chaos rules is an oxymoron. The, the rules don't work in chaos, right? That is the definition of it. Right. It's like the fog of war. It's like the fog that I'm sure of, emerge, of emergencies. You can't tell what's up and down. You can't tell the, the ground from the, um, the floor. And that's when, man, you're screwed. Excuse my French. So, um, uh, What you can do in those situations, though, what really does matter, when all the compasses stop working externally, is that you can start to, and you must, I think, start to trigger your internal compass. Mm. And that internal compass is your purpose, is your intent, is your focus on humanity and doing the right thing and compassion and helping people, which is what you guys do all the time. And so if you focus on that intention or intentionality, that's the way maybe you can better navigate. And I'm not saying perfectly because it is not perfect, but better navigate your way out of the chaos into plain old crisis again. Who who would think that you would be happy to just be in crisis? Right. Yeah. So basically then you're saying, and this is my, my words here, is that you have to take a look at the situation and triage it. Right. And then, and, and I guess take care of the, the low hanging fruit first instead of the opposite, take care of the big one, because it's sometimes easier just to knock those low hanging fruits out of the way, deal with that issue, and then move on to the larger crisis and let the larger one burn for a little bit, for lack of a better term. Sometimes I wouldn't say that was every time. Uh, you know, you got a nuclear warhead going off somewhere. You want to handle the big one first right. and handle the ground, the ground stuff later. So I, I, I think what it takes, 
um, is sort of that ability to improvise and to um, um, to move quickly, but with the right kind of cognition. So you have to be able to see 360 degrees to be a good crisis manager. And then you have to very quickly be able to focus on what is the most important. So the triage has to become just part of your breathing. Oftentimes I work with corporate boards. I work with, you know, corporations. I work with individuals, you, you, you power companies, um, um, you name it. Um, you work with them on, on the pivot. Sometimes I bring in improv companies. I have one that I, I work with, actually. So to be able to um, move with it as opposed to getting stuck mm. in what it should be, because you know that in a crisis, nothing is as it should be. <laughs> it wouldn't be a crisis otherwise, right? right. The, the one thing I do want to just say, before I forget, you mentioned 9-11 and you mentioned you know everything that was going on. Do you know... That after 9-11, in, in, uh, about the year, within the next, that year, and then after 2008, 2009, Homeland Security actually brought in uh, a group of science fiction writers. Because they were trying to identify all the possible things that could go wrong next in a terrorist attack or God knows what. And they realized that they were thinking too much in, in lanes, you know, they're mm-hmm. swift lanes, they're whatever, and they needed to be thinking outside of the lanes. So they brought in these folks to sort of brainstorm what could go wrong next. It's really interesting. And when you're doing this planning, you sort of have to do that exact same thing. I'm working with somebody, an organization right now, and and um, a very large one, and everybody bored. Everything they're thinking in their lanes, and we're now beginning to figure out how do you identify issues, how do you go outside of the grid to identify those ones that are like you know off here. It's almost like a hurricane map, right? Mm-hmm. You can map the ones that are that are in line to come, and then you're there's a depression over here and there's a depression over here and there, whatever. And which of them might happen. Right. Yeah. That's some, that's some, that's some really interesting stuff. And maybe, you know, I mean, thinking about this and, and thinking outside the box, the proverbial box here, you know, when we do our training um, and we do our exercises, uh, we, we don't necessarily train on crisis planning, right? We, we train on response, like, you know, sending people out to the, right. you know, to the event. Um, maybe we should do start, you know, kind of thinking that way too, and, and thinking outside that box. That's one of the reasons why I like reading um, uh, disaster fiction, if you will, because it makes you go, okay, you know, sometimes it sounds like super crazy, right? And if somebody wrote a book um, in and say two thousand year two thousand and said that we're going to be a year where there's going to be riots and a pandemic and and fires and floods all this i'd be like come on it's way too much stuff to put into one event but um there it is <laughs> you know the, there it is it's happening um this year so speaking of that and 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 not to not to get into any politics at all but i just 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 generally speaking you know i it seems like it seems like in in this particular time here that there is really no Solid. Like we during nine eleven, we came together as a community. We came together as a nation, right? And whether or not you like President Bush or whether or not you like Rudy Giuliani, everybody sort of fell in behind them and said, "Okay, as a nation, we're going forward." Yeah. And it seems like during this crisis, I don't know why this one particularly, you know, the, the the COVID, why this one got politicized so quickly, and that we didn't have that like 
coming together as a nation to fight this crisis. Is that something inherently different between as our nation between now and then, or is it just because we have lack of leadership anywhere here in this nation right now? Well, um, leadership matters. Tone at the top matters. Caring for humanity, caring for individuals, having compassion for all of the terrible stuff that's going on, the, the families that have gotten rent apart. Your, your, your mom is in a, a nursing home. They won't let you see her. You won't, you can't see her if she gets sick and dies. You know, you have, you're on an iPad next to her. Everybody in a nursing home gets sick, etc. If these things don't call for compassion, you tell me what does. Mm. So I believe that, um, in a crisis, in an emergency response, the true nature comes out. Whatever that might be, we all have different natures. But if you first care about the people, if you first care about getting things that logically and operationally work, I mean, look, we have a vaccine. We have some vaccines now. These things have been working. Um, but if you set the stage for us to be selfless, for us to be logical and kind and on the money and everybody's expected to give up stuff, to make masks, to do whatever they need to do. Then you've got a world, you know, like in the world wars, um, not like the Vietnam war, not really like the Korean war, but in the world wars where you're all, and like nine 11, you're all going in that same direction. And that's, what's critical. And that's why leadership does matter. So I think that, um, you know, without going into the politics of it, because everybody's got their own, there's their own take on it. I do believe that there is an objective truth in life. There's objective reality. I do believe there's subjective views of that reality. And everybody's got a different one. Mm -hmm. But in a crisis, leadership matters. And it's the leadership of the best generals. I actually went to a course at the Army War College. Fascinating. It was for CEOs. And it was fascinating because they brought all the, the battle strategy and army strategy to um, to business. It was just fascinating. Loved it. Learned so much, including the after action review, which I had not known about before. I <laughs> use it all the time now, right? Yeah. I'm, sure, I'm sure you guys do too. Um, but what you learn is that there are ways to exhibit leadership. And when they're lacking, you see what you get. Absolutely. Well, Davey, thank you so much for your for your time today, and I, I love leaving it right there on, on leadership. I think that's uh, that's key, and and I just want you to know the door is always open for you, everybody. In the show notes, I have put the link to her um, uh, Forbes page, which is amazing. Take the time to click on that and go read some of the articles, um, and I'd love to have you back on the show sometime. Love to be back. Thank you so much. Take good care. Thanks. Okay. Bye. 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 Oh man, everybody, that was a great talk right there. And uh, thank you again for having, for, for being on the show, Davia. is awesome. Hey, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to be talking to the Natural Hazards uh, Center over here in Colorado about their 1,000 letter uh, program. The Outer Limits Supply Company was founded on the idea of providing high quality first aid kits. Their goal is to supply the life saving equipment you'll need to mitigate the majority of medical or traumatic injuries often seen during austere conditions. 
Whether it is when you are on the outdoor adventure or your team has responded to a major crisis, the Outer Limit Supply Company provides practical, user-friendly first aid and trauma kits that anyone can use. If you enter EM Weekly at checkout, you'll receive 20% off your purchase. So go to www.outerlimitsupply.com today. Seconds count during an emergency. That's why at Titan HST, we're always inventing new technology to help people stay safe and help people who can provide help get connected with people who need help. At Titan HST, we've deployed mesh networking, allowing emergency communication even when networks are down, augmented reality, and real-time translation. We believe in the power of people to help each other stay safe and thrive. Well, everybody, hey, I, as you guys know, I like VanQuest gear. You know, I started using them a while ago. And as a guy that puts my stuff through the paces, man, I, I mean, like, I'm really hard on my on my gear. Um, it, it holds up really well. And it's such a such a quality, you know, equipment. I wouldn't have them here if I didn't think so. And so if you're looking for that great holiday gift, go to VanQuest.com. Um, and at your checkout, put EM5 Weekly and enjoy a 20% discount. That's EM5 Weekly at checkout for an additional discount on top of the already great savings that is there. And so that's the important stuff. So, so VanQuestGear.com. So that being said, I want to welcome in our, our next guest coming in from the Natural Hazard Center. Hey, Doug, how you doing? Hey, Todd, how are you? I'm doing well. Hey, thanks for uh, for being here today. And I, I'm excited to just learn more about the thousand letters. I know that we're trying to get some letters written up and, and getting out there uh, by the oh, by the middle of this month. So we're kind of pressed for time on this one. So that's why we brought you in um, to, to discuss it. So what's this campaign all about? So I think <laughs> maybe there was another guest supposed to come on. I, I'm from the America Adapts podcast um, where I talk about adapting to climate change. But I'm very flexible here, but I'm not familiar with that campaign. I think that maybe one of the other guests canceled. I'm not sure. Oh, geez. Okay. Well, that's, uh, that is an interesting twist on everything. And Hey, everybody, you know what we are here for sure is, uh, Semper Gumby and Semper Flexible. <laughs> and, you know, outside of the fact that that happened, that's okay. So, Doug, well, well, Doug, welcome to the show. And uh, let's talk about a little bit what you do. So explain to the audience what you're, uh, what you're all about. Well, um, I think just partly re- reaching out to what I do at the podcast, um, it's called America Adapts, the Climate Change Podcast. And I interview, you know, academics, scientists, practitioners about how society is going to adapt to climate change. And I think it's partly why, you know, emergency management is, you know, one of the stakeholder groups that dealing with that. And so my previous life, I did a lot of wildlife conservation policy and education, but I've been doing the, the podcast for about four years and even more recently um, started a streaming TV channel at Simpatico, where I talk about a lot of climate change issues. And we actually talk with some disaster experts and such, but it's this issue I've touched upon, you know, semi-frequently on the podcast. So definitely interested in what, what you're trying to do here. Oh, absolutely. And now Doug, you, you go and you speak around the country, around the world specifically about this. Um, and, and I, I remember finding you and, and one of your speeches that you did, I find it super interesting. So why, why does climate change, you know, 
as emergency managers, this is what I say, and, and I'm going to be politically incorrect here a little bit. Um, I, I don't care uh, whether the um, disaster or whether, excuse me, whether climate change is caused by man or not, right? Um, as emergency managers, I don't think that's necessarily our lane to fix. But when, what we do have to do is plan for the fact that climate change is real. Right. And climate change is impacting. We have a fire going on right now in Orange County. You know, um, it's warmer during this time of year. The, there's less rain coming in, things like this. So we have to plan for that. How do you see climate change impacting how we deal with these issues as, as emergency managers, maybe? Well, OK, yeah. So, I mean, I'm talking to folks from all different sectors, people, you know, in the ag sector and, you know, a lot of on the ground action. And I and I get that position of like, well, let's not jump into the controversy around climate change. And so, you know, if you're offering specific tools and resources for people to use and, you know, especially with emergencies, it's a very reactive to like a certain crisis and you're not going to kind of dwell on that. But, you know, one of the you know, conversations I have with my guests around this is there is a learning opportunity because we are dealing in it's climate change is going to make a lot of these disasters even more extreme. Um there's a learning opportunity with the public that, you know, I, I don't think we should shy away from that because it's the notion of like, all right, we're dealing with this now, but if, even if it's potentially going to get worse or more frequent, let's avoid that. And we're going to avoid that if we're dealing with some of the larger issues around climate change. And so I know it's a, your average person when you're dealing on the ground, interfacing with the public, you're not sitting there lecturing them about climate change, but you know, if you start getting to the policy level and so the awareness campaigns, there's a huge opportunity there. What do you see? I mean, you've been worldwide. I know you spent some time in Australia, correct? Yep, yep. Yeah, so you've seen it, you know, from, from more than just one angle here. And like, I mean, I've, most of the audience is from the United States that are listening, but we do have people in Australia and Canada and Europe. Um, where do you see climate change being the most impacted, you know, as far as what area of the world? Oh, well, that's, it's a good question. And, you know, and it comes to literal impacts. It's like, what are some of these extreme events? It's a lot of it. How does it elevate itself in regards to a country's ability to respond to it? So even though, you know, the United States, if we get hit by a lot of hurricanes, we have capacity to respond to it. And in Australia, they recently went through some wildfires and they, I mean, that truly was just countrywide. And it, it seemed like borderline ability of a developed country to deal with it. But I actually do a lot of interviews uh, on the on Simpatico with people doing adaptation in uh, these issues in developing countries in India and Bangladesh and um, yeah I I think their definition of like disaster and emergency response is different than ours you know and but I, I also think in some ways they do it better because they've got more experience dealing with these things with international aid groups so you develop networks that are quickly can kind of get things out to people. We, you know, United States, we do things a lot independently. Oh, what's our local government going to do? And I know groups like FEMA and they're there to help coordinate more national responses. But I think some of these other even developing countries, you know, we could probably learn through some of the integration that they've done. Absolutely. And, you know, I mean, obviously you take a look at the, some of the developing countries like, you know, around India, Pakistan, uh, Bangladesh and those areas. They, I mean, they're hit every year with some major floods and they seem to, you know, to be able to recover and, and, and get back into working modes fairly quickly. Um, speaking of that, and, and this is a little bit off topic, I guess, but I'd like to hear your opinion on this. In the United States, we're, we are very, very um, lucky. 
the majority of us can go to our kitchen sink and turn on water that drinks. You know, um, you know, a friend of mine, uh, uh, <laughs> Pete Turner, always says it's odd that we're a nation where we actually poop and pee in potable water, you know, and flush it down the down the toilet. Um, do you see the the impacts of climate change um, impacting, you know, water supply for the, for the world, uh, specifically potable water. Oh, definitely. Definitely. And you know, that's just, I think we're going to probably have to maybe reassess even how we think about it in the United States, but you know, access to clean water is just one of the, the big impacts that everyone's worried about and drought is, is becoming an issue. And it's part of the problem too, is that, you know, it might not, necessarily be happening now, but we're talking five, 10, 15 years out. How do you sort of take that out of sort of the, you know, issues that they've already been dealing with? Some countries have, you know, ongoing issues to access to, um, to, to water. And, you know, I was in a, visiting a conference in Africa and I arrived like four in the morning and I shared a taxi bus with these two, um, women from, um, Malawi and we were, um, Malawi. Yeah. That's how we refer to the people. And we were talking about climate change adaptation in their country. And they're just like, well, we have, uh, we're dealing with a drought that's impacting 2 million people. And you think, talk about water access issues with that. And I'm like, that is so different than the adaptation issues that we're dealing with in the United States. It's like 2 million people, major drought, issues of hunger, issues of access to clean water. And it's, uh, the scale can be so much different in these other countries. Absolutely. And, you know, again, it goes back to, you know, the, you know, I hate to say the word privilege because it's always been, it's been politicized so much now, but the privilege that we have in the United States here and the fact that we're moving more and more people. And this is the thing that kind of scares me a little bit here in California is that we're moving more and more people into the city centers um, and, and away from, away from the outside. Right. So we're, you know, we're, we're the coast is being you know, completely impacted by more and more people moving to the coast. Um, and here in California, you know, getting clean water to, um, you know, to basically a desert, if you will, you know, Los Angeles and Orange County and whatnot uh, is, is becoming more stretched and we're still taking, you know, water stuff from the Colorado river um, and the impacts of, of the global you know, warming, if you will, or climate change um, is really impacting the water supply as well. So it's one of the things I'm always, I'm always thinking about. So the future, I'm going to have you put your hat on for a second. Okay. Where do you see, how, how do you see us being able to combat this, um, again, as, as emergency managers, not, not as policymakers, not as people that can, you know, actually go out and, you know, tell people not to, to do things. Um, how do we, um, how, how do we push people into the way as emergency managers into planning for climate change? Well, I think there's an awareness part of it. And it's, I'm not as familiar with like the, the rank and file of emergency managers. But when I worked for the state of Florida, I worked for their wildlife conservation state agency. It's a big state agency, like 2,500 people and a lot of scientists, a lot of people doing some really important work. But when I got there, this was about 10 years ago. And I'm not there now, obviously I'm, I'm in Tucson, Arizona, but um, I, we were starting the climate program because they weren't t- allowed to talk about climate change at the time. But the new governor, Charlie Chris, came on and said, all right, let's do climate change. And just all the agencies were ramping up the work and there was some enthusiasm. But what I've encountered, which was just kind of shocking, is the lack of just even basic awareness around climate change, the fundamentals, like what will it mean to wildlife? Like what's a vulnerability assessment? There's all these kind of tools and things that were starting to kind of come around. So we did a big um, 
education like push, we created a class which was really popular. It was the most popular class at the time at that agency, like the fundamentals of climate change. And so, you know, not knowing what sort of exposure maybe emergency managers are getting at different levels of how they get education, but just be surprised across the board, different, you know, wildlife conservationists, urban planners, you think, oh, they must have some climate change exposure, what it might mean to how it impacts their job. And I think we've just scratched the surface. I think just getting the fundamentals, offering basic coursework and where it isn't sort of, you know, it's not controversial to take class, hopefully. And, you know, you bring in the experts to kind of get that. And, you know, I, I think it'll get people thinking and hopefully in your community, be like, oh, I didn't quite think about it that way. And I'm, I'm tired of reading about what climate change means to my field and, you know, the New York Times. Or I was like, no, you know, have a climate change course that's run by people within the field that's useful and can be very applied. So I, I think just getting down to the fundamentals and it's, even though I've been doing it for nearly 20 years, I still find that most sectors we're just scratching the surface that people have still have basic, basic skills when it means to adapt to climate change. Absolutely. And I'm going to leave you with one last question here because I think it's, uh, uh, for me, it's interesting. I was reading this article, um, in, Oh my gosh, I forget which magazine it was. And it was one of the science magazines. And they're talking about the fact with the thawing of the tundra, um, specifically over in the, um, the Russian tundra area, right? Um, that we may be releasing more toxins in the air that the human body hasn't been used to. And I think about this idea here of, of what we're going through with uh, COVID. And do you think that possibly could we be releasing something that we haven't touched in a long time and creating more diseases like COVID that the American or that the human body is not used to? Oh, definitely. You know, actually, I did an interview with someone who man. He's a Russian, and I he was in Russia. And I did the interview, and he was working on doing some wildlife management within the tundra. But he was talking about it's you know uh, melting and. Yeah, we, we don't know. It's happening too quickly. We're used to, as a civilization, oh, that took 500 years to adjust to. That took a 1,000 years to adjust to. Even I mean, so that what remains to be seen that kind of is, is melting out of those areas, I think that's making a lot of people nervous. But you kind of contrast that with like, you know, that might still just be a fraction of the threat of, you know, warming temperatures and like drought. Like if whole regions of Africa like experience drought in big ways, you know, starvation, you know, versus a pandemic. I mean, it's, in some ways, it's a horror show. I never really like to get doom and gloom on my podcast. It's generally a pretty positive one. But it, it's just we're playing too big of an experiment too quickly. It's just an un, unwise approach. It'd be better if we really put the brakes on what we're doing here. So absolutely. And I agree with you. And I think as emergency managers, we have to take, you know, the concepts of the problems that are caused uh, by climate change and we have to plan for them. Doug, how do people find you and uh, pitch your podcast here to let people find that as well? Well, the podcast is America Adapts, a climate change podcast and whatever app you might use. If you're using Apple, the Apple app, just search for America Adapts and it should pop up. Or if you search for just a climate change podcast, it should be one of the top fives that kind of show up. And yeah, I've done 125 episodes and it's a nice mix of experts and communicators and, you know, practitioners. So, yeah, definitely come check it out. Absolutely. And Doug, I'd love to have you on the show again. And uh, thank you for your time today. Yeah. Thanks for having me on, Todd. Right. Okay. So now, now I have Lori coming in 
from the Natural Hazards Center. And uh, woo, it's been a, it's been a crazy day. It's been a crazy day. Hi, Lori, and uh, welcome to the show. Um, today, I woke up with uh, wildland fires going around my house, and or not my house necessarily, but in my in my neighbor, in my community, and uh, some technical issues, and so now we're here. <laughs> Oh, Lori, you're muted. Still, it's okay. It's, and this is par for the course today, everybody. So uh, thank you for everybody for being flexible on this. And uh, um, But I'll give you a little bit of background here why Lori's here while we're fixing some of the technical issues on this side. Um, so there's a 1,000-letter campaign that's going on. And so for more than... Uh, and reading this from the not the hazards.colorado.edu site. And for uh, more than 20 years, they've been looking at uh, the respective members of the hazard disaster community to rise to occasion during, crisis tight, uh, during the crisis from 9-11 on. And so uh, what they're looking for now is to do a thousand letters um, to be collected to share the vision of how we can work together to ultimately reduce the enormous harm and suffering caused by disasters while identifying practical steps that will help move the vision forward. And this means that what we're looking for, what they're looking for, is for us as emergency managers to step up and write the letters um, and, and send them. And Lori and her group is going to compile them together and send them out. Oh, Lori, you're back. Oh, no, we still don't have sound. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. I know she, and, and the worst part about it is she has a hard stop at the top of the hour because she has to jump into another meeting. And so we really want to share this, uh, this story. You got it. Oh, still working on sound. It's okay. Meanwhile, <laughs> it's, it's like one of those things that you go, Hey, we got to, we got to stretch. Right. And, and that's kind of what we're doing. So let's, uh, you know, Talk about this thing. That's one thing that I would like to see more emergency managers do, right? We we sit back and we, and we talk about and we amongst ourselves um, about issues of emergency management, what's going on, but we don't seem to um, step up together and, and really talk to our elected officials um, about what we need to do as emergency managers to make our organization, to make our profession better. And and I really think that we should do more of this. Um, are we are we back on, Lori? No, no sound. It's okay. Um, and so I think that working with the the Natural Hazard Center out of Colorado and with this one thousand letters program, uh, I really do believe that um, this is going to be something that could be impactful um, into what we do as emergency managers and in telling our elected officials specifically um, why this is important for us, right? And there's four um, major policy priorities uh, that they're discussing, right? And it's, you know, coming into the idea of, of the uh, COVID-19, uh, economic recovery, racial equality, and climate change are the priorities that with the, with the Biden-Harris transition, that's what they're looking at here. And so I, when we talk about this emergency management aspect of it, this should be taken um, seriously as well. Right now, we just talked about climate change um, just before, and and how as emergency managers we have to plan for that. And again, whether you believe it's caused by humans or if it's caused by the cyclical aspect of of the world moving in, in the way it goes, getting closer to the sun or further from the sun, uh, which could be the, the case as well, we still have to plan for those uh, the crisis that occurred 
uh, because of the um, uh, because of climate change. And so I, I, I really do believe that this 1000 letter program um, is going to make a difference. Lori, she's back. No, we still don't have sound. Oh, wait, one more thing. It's okay. Semper Gumby, everybody. Semper Flexible. This is what we do here as emergency managers. And Lori's working through those technical difficulties. It's been one of those mornings. Seriously, it's been one of those mornings. You know, getting woken up this morning with going into the uh, – uh, with fires burning. And then I was talking to to Brian, producer Brian, with a show that he had earlier with some technical difficulties. And, and it's okay, right? This is what we do here. Uh, I and thank you for everybody who's sticking with us during this uh, 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 the little bit of this 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 issue. I'm gonna go in. I'm, you know what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna take a look into the uh, some of the comments that were there that I kind of missed before. Uh, Dan Scott shares a book over here. Um, Eileen says she likes to tell people to go to the deepest darkest resources of the brain and pull out their wordy nightmare, and and <laughs> and then uh, the Last of Us talk about what ifs. Yeah, I agree with you. The, the what if scenario that we were talking about earlier today. Um, that's why, like I said, I like to read um, disaster fiction, if you will, because it makes you think outside that box, right? Uh, of of what we're so used to, and those what ifs. There's a book. Um, actually, this is what uh, Dan was talking about: imagine deadly threats, um, and that's a good book. So, Lori, okay, let's try again. No sound. <laughs> oh no, it, it it's it's okay. But we gave it a shot here. Um, and then, uh, yeah, <laughs> Eileen says, it is 2020. Absolutely. This is a 20, this is a 2020 hit uh, for for us here at uh, um, Weekly. So, all right, well, that's okay. So Lori's going to restart the computer. I'm going to stretch a little bit more here. I'd like to hear more comments on here. Um, a couple things is on, on crisis leadership, all right, I, I th- again, I think that's where we can do a better job and it's something that we should focus on a little bit more as emergency managers is leadership during crisis. And I know that we, we, as a profession, we do a great job, but there are times when in the positions that you are, are put into the side role. Right. And if you think about what I mean by this is that we do, Emergency Operations Center coordination. Uh, we coordinate the planning. We coordinate the exercises and stuff like this. But when game day comes into play, um, we coach others, right? And I think as we're coaching others during game day, that we have to really um, help out with that coordination of the crisis leadership. And what I mean by that is how do we message properly, one. Number two, we have to put our citizens our residents um, up front on these things. And so the decision-making process has to be based based for them. Or in, in case of businesses, what are our clients and then also about the staff of that, that work for us, right, our employees. Um, and having that be the, the guiding post or the guidepost for what we do as, as during crisis leadership. Uh, I'd like to hear what you guys think about that as well, you know. Um, and then in the climate change aspect of it, like I said, um, we really need to, <laughs> yeah, at least it says leadership during crisis um, are not taught in business schools. It's not taught in any schools, I don't think, realistically. But, yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, um, and, and again, with, with the, the, the climate change aspect of things, I think that we can lead uh, in this as well. Because 
we tell people to be prepared and and a lot of times when we're talking about preparedness it's a fear right um you know we say oh the earthquake is coming or the big tornado is coming or whatever uh be prepared for that particular disaster well if we do it in the idea of taking care of your family taking care of your community and during the climate change type of thing here is saying hey you know what um why why are we pouring so much water because here in california we have a drought all the time right you know why don't why aren't we saving water during times when we can save water um and then during time of during time of drought right we can actually use that water to do things like irrigation and things like this um for 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 plants or you know talk about drought resistant um planting and whatnot you know and so i think we can use that leadership as well to um to make it happen uh and and so that's kind of where we're headed okay Lori's back okay can you hear me Todd, I'm so sorry. I've used the StreamYard platform even just last week and it worked perfectly. So I don't know what happened. I guess it's just our crazy Thursday. So I apologize, but I'm so happy to be with you. Oh, I'm so stoked. I'm so stoked that we got it working. You know, um, I'm sure people just got, uh, you know, we're sort of over here and we stretch a little bit here, but I really talked a little bit about what you guys are doing, but I didn't do it any justice. So Lori, welcome to the program. Thank you. So tell me about your thousand letters. Yeah, thank you. So, and I thought you did a beautiful job of summarizing it because while you couldn't hear me, I could hear you and You're absolutely right. This is a new initiative that we've just launched through the Natural Hazard Center, but it's a relatively time-delimited one. And so we're reaching out to the emergency management community, the hazards and disaster research community, and we have invited everyone in our community to please write a letter, no more than 500 words. We're trying to collect 1,000 letters by December 15th that we are then going to share with the new administration. And um, we are really excited to hear from our community, to really hear about what it is that emergency managers and our researchers think needs to either be started in response to the many crises we face. What is there something that needs to be restored? Where do we need to see investments in terms of our people our physical infrastructure, our collective infrastructure that makes emergency management and the research enterprise work. So 500 words, 1,000 letters. We're looking for those by December 15th. And thank you for letting me to come on and talk about this initiative. Oh, no problem. I I, I saw this. It was a, a LinkedIn post that I read, and I was like, oh, this is something that I really want to get behind, specifically as an emergency manager, specifically as Ian Weekly. Um, and, and I really do uh, believe that this is this is great. Now, my only question is, is we seem to only do this like every four years where we get excited about the new administration coming in or every eight years, depending on how it switches. Um, you know, at, at, the, at the state level, same thing, like every four years, we, you know, every eight years we're looking at change. Um, why, why aren't we doing more of this on a regular basis to our, our elected leaders? You know, why aren't we reaching out to them more often saying, hey, this is an important topic and, and we, we get in trouble, like a, for lack of a better term, when things go sideways after a disaster, but we don't seem to really be leaning forward on these things. What can we do better as emergency managers, as, as a profession, both academically speaking and both practically speaking, um, to help you know, really tell our story? Mm, 
That is a great question. I think it is first and foremost recognizing the power of our voices, recognizing how many of us there are who are working in this field, but also recognizing that the broader public, there is no ignoring the increasing frequency and intensity of disasters. We're all disaster survivors right now. If we've been fortunate enough to make it through this pandemic, uh, tens of millions of Americans have been affected by natural hazard events in, in single years, as well as in the, over the, the last decade. And so this really is becoming a shared experience among the public, right? And so I think as more and more people are thinking about what it means to get ready for or to live through a disaster, they're also then thinking about what it, what is going on with my emergency management in my city or my community. And so I think this is just such a chance, as you're suggesting, Todd, for us to lift up our voices together, not just during the big presidential election years, but to recognize that we live out our lives at the local level. And that is actually where we may have the most chance to really make a difference through building connections with our local emergency managers and also through lifting up our voices to our local elected leaders to let them know how much an investment in emergency management, but also investments in mitigation activities can help us to reduce those future disaster losses. Absolutely. That's such a great point, Lori. Now, I'm going to rest because we didn't start off necessarily because of some of the technical stuff here. But I wanted to ask you, and maybe some people don't know, I'm sure everybody knows, but let's just say there's some new people out here. What exactly do you guys do at the Hazards uh, Center, Natural Hazard Center, Colorado? Yes. So thank you for asking. The Natural Hazard Center for 45 years has actually served as the National Science Foundation designated information clearinghouse for the societal dimensions of hazards and disasters. And so what that means is that our mission is really to help create a center of gravity for the research practitioner and policy making communities. And so over four, for over four decades, the Hazard Center has really stood for uh, translating research knowledge and getting it out to wider audiences facilitating connections between researchers, practitioners, and policymakers, uh, conducting original research, and also training and mentoring diverse next-generation researchers and practitioners. And so that's really what we stand for at the Natural Hazard Center, and we try to um, stand as a body to help bring together the different people and organizations who are concerned with reducing the harm and suffering from disasters. So outside of the, the 1,000 letter campaign, um, which I'd actually, I'd like to see more than 1,000 letters, but let's, you know, um, what, how can people get involved with your organization? Yes. Yeah, so I would love it. Thank you for asking me that. If people would go to hazards.colorado.edu, we have so many um, free publications that are really geared towards, again, translating and sharing research information because we recognize as a researcher, I know a lot of times what I create, it's a book or it's hidden behind a journal paywall and a busy emergency manager may not have the time to read what I've written. And so at the Hazard Center, we have a lot of initiatives like our Research Count series where we ask researchers to take their big 75,000 word book and boil it down to 750 words so your average busy emergency manager can pick up that research count. So all of our publications are free. They're online. 
We also host an annual workshop every summer in Colorado when we're able to gather for 45 years. So that's a, a big opportunity to come together. Um, also, we have other resources like in partnership with FEMA, we've launched a Making Mitigation Work webinar series where we focus on new emergency management and mitigation policy practice and research. And so there are lots of resources like that. So I hope your listeners will go to hazards.colorado.edu and sign up for those resources. Absolutely. And we'll also put that link um, into our show and we'll make Thank that a regular you. thing. So one last question for you, because I know you have a hard stop because you got a big meeting you have to hit. Um, you know, what do you see happening here in the future for both, you know, your organization and for emergency management? Yeah, I mean, I, I think we are obviously your prior guest was focusing on this. We are obviously uh, living in an age of extremes. We are living in a world today where on average a disaster happens somewhere around the world every single day. And so we have, the future is here. We are living in an ever more turbulent world with more disasters. It's a more unequal world where fewer people have the necessary resources to prepare for these disasters as inequality rises. So that's the, that is the reality we're facing. What do I see for our future? I think we have to work together. We have to build our coalitions of researchers, of emergency managers, of climate change advocates and activists, of youth who are taking to the streets, who are trying to fight for a more just and sustainable future. So I think what I see in our future is us a much larger coalitions of people working together because we are facing so many more complex and cascading crises. And I think when we work together, that is our greatest chance to do something about the rising risks that we face. Absolutely. Laura, I'd love to have you on again sometime, talk a little bit more what you guys are doing, and uh, we'll give you a full show, I think. Okay. And Todd, I have a question for you. Sure. Are you going to write a letter for the 1000 Letters Project? I have actually written a letter. I just have to get it done and sent to you. So it's okay. ready to go. I, I can't wait to receive it. And I just want to say the ones we have received so far have been so inspiring, full of honesty, sometimes full of outrage, other times full of hope, but they all at their core are really about a future that we're trying to envision together and to move forward. So Todd, I cannot wait to read your letter and um, thank you for doing that. And thank you for giving me this platform today to talk to your beautiful audience. No problem, Lori. Thank you so much. I know you have to get going to your meeting and uh, uh, tell everybody at the meeting I said hi. Okay, I will. Thank you, Todd. You're fabulous with this. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Everybody, thank you so much for spending time with me this morning, even through some of our hiccups and uh, our technical glitches. Uh, I think that as emergency managers, I think we can all appreciate uh, what's going on. And oh, there's Lori. And um, that being said, everybody, I would love to see you guys, um, you know, kind of write those letters. And make Ian Weekly proud of on that. And we'll see you guys all next week. Stay safe. Stay hydrated. <laughs>